Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Susan Banke. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy here at the University of Sydney, and I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation who are the traditional custodians of this land, and I'd like to pay my respect to the elders, both past and present. Before we start, I'd just like to direct your attention to a couple of sign-up sheets we have here and lots of information about future Sydney Ideas events. You can sign up to get more information about Sydney Ideas in the future, and in addition, there's a sign-up sheet for people that are interested in refugee and asylum seeker issues, and one can assume that many of you here in the room today have that interest. So this event, Trapped In, Pushed Out, is generously sponsored by SAPMIC, or the Sydney Asia-Pacific Migration Center. SAPMIC is a new center at the university. It's an interdisciplinary, uh, cross-faculty initiative that seeks to provide a platform for discussion and engagement and exchange among scholars and researchers and practitioners and policymakers, local, national, regional, and international levels. There's currently about 40 staff members that are involved with SAPMINC and about 30 um, graduate students who are associated with the center, and we work, all of us, on forced migration and refugee issues, but also labor issues, economic issues, economic and labor migration. And what unites us is, is a commitment to feed into the polity discussion of what's happening with migration today, including advocacy efforts. And given the current political climate in both the United States and Australia, I suspect that those numbers of people who are interested in migration in the Asia-Pacific will continue to grow as the reasons for migration, climate change and conflict and economic inequality, grow increasingly urgent. And that's why we've opened this talk with a photography exhibit about Syria curated and photographed by people who have experienced conflict and continue to experience the most punishing drivers of migration, conflict and war. And I'd like to thank Maher Jamus and Ali Talib for very, very generously helping us with this wonderful photography exhibit. Thank you. And this is an art exhibit that uh, represents the, um, the work of their curating skills, but also the photographs taken of people that they know and love and care about, some of whom remain in Syria today. So while these reasons to migrate are accelerating, border neuroses spreads from country to country. And without being dramatic, I just want to say that everything we know to be true about what is fair and what is just and what we can expect from a government, these expectations are no longer in line with reality. No longer can we assume that the children of non-citizens can get an education. No longer can we assume that people with valid visas and passports are protected from invasive border police. In fact, dual citizenship may soon be a thing of the past. And certainly, no longer is fleeing violence a certainty for getting protection in another state, if it ever was. And no longer can we assume that providing sanctuary and providing solidarity to refugee and asylum seeker populations will protect you, as people are now criminalized just for the act of helping others. But what we do know is that today, 
Governments are copying each other in a race for the bottom. And we're going to be looking at that issue more intently through five wonderful speakers, one via WhatsApp. So we have David Fitzgerald from uh, University of San Diego, professor of sociology there, who will first provide an overview of current policies in the United States related to the externalization of its borders. Graham Tom of Amnesty International Australia will offer a policy overview of Australia after that, discussing both offshoring and regional developments if time. Michelle Petery, a PhD candidate here at the university, is going to talk about what it's actually like in Australia's onshore centers. And Behruz Bouchani, who is a journalist currently in detention on Manus Island, through the voice of Omid Tofigian at the University of Sydney, will talk about the experience on Manus Island. And the speakers will talk for about an hour, and then we'll have Q&A, during which we hope we can dialogue with Behruz um, on Manus via WhatsApp, using technology to its most advantageous form, we hope. I don't want to take up any more time with introductions. I'll just introduce David and let the others follow. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much to uh, Susan and Sydney Ideas for the opportunity to share what's uh, going on in the U.S. today and to learn a bit more about the Australian experience as well. There's been a lot of talk, maybe too much talk, about building a wall in the United States on its border with Mexico to keep Mexicans out of the U.S. And from my perspective, living in San Diego, California, this is a, a curious proposition, in part because as you fly from the east coast toward San Diego and you look down at the land 35,000 feet below, in all of the urban areas, you will already see something that very much looks like a wall. And where I live in San Diego, this is what the border looks like already and has looked uh, for the past decade. So about a third of the border already has some level of fortification. What's also curious about this idea of constructing a wall to keep people from Mexico from entering the U.S. is that we are at the lowest levels of apprehensions of irregular migrants in my lifetime since the early uh, 1970s, if I may date myself. So the, the apprehensions have fallen off a, a cliff here in, in recent years. Even more curious is that since 2014, there are more people of other than Mexican nationality who are being apprehended by the U.S. government than, than Mexicans. So a very large uh, sea change from what's historically been the pattern here. But today I want to talk about not what's so dramatic right at the border with this, this wall or this fence or these proposals, but all kinds of processes that continue to happen in the darkness, often in the jungle, quietly, in airport transit zones, areas that we don't as easily see and are arguably just as important in preventing asylum seekers from ever getting anywhere near the United States. These are policies that sometimes are deliberately targeting asylum seekers, sometimes they're targeting other kinds of people who are on the move. I will, I will use the word migrant. I know that that's a con controversial position. By that, bear with me. I simply mean people who are moving from one country to another, some of whom are going to be seeking asylum. But the U.S., like many other countries, has developed policies to keep them uh, from even reaching U.S. airports or the U.S. border. So I'm going to first speak about the idea of a dome, an aerial dome over North America. 
And the U.S. has been a pioneer in all kinds of techniques to keep people in their countries of uh, disembarkation. It's been going on for much longer than you would guess from reading the literature that has mostly been developed out of the European experience. Since the late 19th century, uh, passengers arriving in the United States through Canada have in many cases been processed by U.S. border officials on Canadian soil, um, for example, in the port at Halifax going back to the 19th century. Since 1952 in the Toronto airport, armed U.S. officers are conducting passport control and customs screening that has since spread to many other airports in Canada and a number of other airports overseas. The U.S. was also an early leader in the use of carrier sanctions that created civil penalties and made the carriers uh, liable to return people to their port of disembarkation if they were inadmissible, and that has been happening for a long time also, both with sea passengers and then slightly more recently with air passengers. We may take for granted the idea of uh, needing a visa to travel, but in the grand scheme of international mobility, this is actually a fairly new um, policy that began during the crisis period of World War I when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917. But like a lot of migration control policies, something that begins at a moment of crisis uh, then becomes institutionalized, its origins become forgotten. By 1924, the U.S., like many other countries, had uh, a permanent policy. And when these policies were first put into place, many people were, were horrified that they would be treated like common criminals simply because they wanted to move from one country to another, but it's something that has become quite quite naturalized. Then finally, behind the scenes, there is a lot of coordination between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. Coordination between the U.S. and Canada is better known. There is a lot of coordination uh, with Mexico that is not well known, and that's deliberately uh, done because U.S. intervention in Mexico has long been a highly sensitive topic within Mexico, given that the U.S. took the northern half of Mexico in the 19th century, including where I live. Um, so I'll be happy to talk in the Q&A if, if you're interested in the details, but let me, let me talk about the Mexican case for just a moment, uh, where the U.S. government has very successfully applied pressure on the Mexican government to make it difficult for 40 nationalities to get visas to come to Mexico. I've had a graduate student actually in the Interior Ministry in Mexico watching as someone on the phone with Washington, D.C. Um, is getting instructions on giving the thumbs up or thumbs down on particular applicants. Uh, all arriving air passengers in Mexico, even if Mexico is apparently their final destination, have their information shared with the American Security Services, same for people who are flying to Canada. There are very few um, constraints, institutional constraints on, on the dome, um, and I think this is for, for several different reasons. One, as I suggested, a lot of these restrictions just seem natural. Um, they, they no longer um, upset travelers the way they, they once did. The issue around air travel in particular has become highly securitized. There is no reason to think that that is ever going to be walked back. And then finally, the uh, demonization of, uh, of smuggling, and I'm not here to promote or, or to demonize smuggling, but there, there is no kind of pro-smuggling uh, lobby that anything having to do with uh, people using a service to illegally move from one country to another um, has, has a very, very bad reputation, and, and governments go out of their way to, to enforce that idea. And secondly, in addition to this dome, there's a kind of moat around uh, North America. And this moat has been actively patrolled since uh, around 1980 in a, in a serious way. 
Um, the nationalities of migrants, again, I'm using that word in a, in a very broad sense, if you'll bear with me. Um, they've been from many different countries, but primarily uh, Haitians and uh, Cubans, so uh, Haitians here in light blue, Cubans in yellow, but also in, in less spectacular numbers, people from the People's Republic of China interdicted both in the Caribbean as well as very far away from the U.S. mainland, thousands of kilometers away in the Western Pacific. The legislation around um, the introduction of Haitians has been especially important, not just for Haitians, but for setting the broader legal parameters of, uh, of U.S. maritime interdiction, which continues. And if you go back to the original executive order from President Ronald Reagan, a Republican, it very explicitly invoked the principle of non-refoulement, that when the U.S. encountered refugees on the high seas, it would not send them back to a country where they'd be persecuted on these five U.N. convention grounds. If you fast forward to 1992, there was a large movement of people out of Haiti trying to reach Florida, and the elder uh, George Bush um, issued a new executive order which explicitly said that neither uh, the U.S. treaty commitments to the, uh, the protocol to the Refugee Convention nor the U.S. Refugee Act from 1980 would apply to activities that took place in international waters. Uh, Bill Clinton who was running for the Democratic presidency, declared this to be an outrage, and as soon as he took office, he maintained the same policy. So once again, you see a lot of stickiness. This may be familiar to those of you who uh, look at the Australian case. This, um, this executive order, though, was, was, uh, uh, there was a lawsuit around it brought by legal advocates. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, said that, yes, this was good law, and it's a decision that's been very widely um, criticized, especially by legal academics, but nevertheless, this continues to be the law of the land in the U.S. What's interesting as a, as a sociologist is that even though the courts have given the executive carte blanche to do what it likes on the high seas, you do see some limited examples of, of constraint. And I don't want to overstate this, but it's interesting to think about why are there any constraints at, at all. Um, there are a set of practices that apply, but they apply different, differentially to different nationalities. So for all nationalities except for two, which I'll mention in a moment, there is something that um, legal scholars have called the shout test. And so what would happen in this scenario here, you see a U.S. Coast Guard cutter that's interdicted, a boat uh, filled with uh, people from Haiti, and there is no process where individuals are asked, you know, why have you come or what will happen if you're sent back? But if you were to stand up in the middle of this group of people and jump up and down and shout and say, I would like to claim asylum in the United States. If I sent back, I will be persecuted based on my political beliefs. Then there is an agent on board the ship who will conduct an initial screening, a credible fear determination. And if you pass that initial threshold, you will be sent to the U.S. Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay for a more complete uh, refugee status determination process. For uh, people from uh, the People's Republic of China, there is a separate process, and this is at least up until the Trump administration. It hasn't been relevant um, since he took office. But there, there is an actual written form that's uh, administered to individuals if they are Chinese nationals. And then a very different sort of policy that was applied to Cuban nationals until January of this year. And let me say something about the, the Cuban policy because it's, it's widely misunderstood even among uh, specialists 
in, in the U.S. Who, who, who study migration generally. The so-called wet-foot, dry-foot policy. There is no wet-foot, dry-foot law in the U.S., but there is a policy that's been created out of a number of different uh, agreements and interpretations and, and one particular law. So what does that mean, wet-foot, dry-foot? Again, up until January of this year, the wet-foot component is that there was a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and Cuban governments in 1994, under which for the first time the Cuban government agreed to accept the repatriation of Cubans interdicted at sea. Until that time, the government refused to do that. It was wrapped up in a very hostile Cold War relationship. Since 1994, uh, both Cubans interdicted in international waters as well as U.S. territorial waters will be returned directly to Cuba. There is an exception for people who pass that initial shipboard uh, screening, which is applied to them. It's, they don't use the shout test. They actually um, ask people why they're trying to get to the U.S. Um, if someone passes that shipboard screening, they would then also be taken to Guantanamo for further processing and then potentially resettlement in a place like uh, New Zealand or Norway, in quite, quite small numbers. The dry foot part of the policy has a, a much longer uh, history. It goes back to the 1966 um, uh, Cuban Adjustment Act. And the interpretation of that that was developed in the, the mid-1990s was that even if someone arrived on the, the beach in Florida or on something that constituted dry land in the U.S., that, uh, that he or she would be, in almost all cases, paroled into the U.S., and parole here is a, an idiosyncratic use of the word parole. It has nothing to do with a normal use of parole in criminal law. It refers to the Attorney General's discretion to bring in people who otherwise wouldn't have a, a legal avenue. And it's been used to bring in um, hundreds of thousands of, of Cubans as well as some others. Now, there's often been a debate about just what constitutes dry land. And uh, last year, in, in one of a number of similar instances, a, a group of about... Uh, 20 Cuban nationals reached this lighthouse. This is taken from a, a TV helicopter. And you can see them on this lighthouse. Here's a U.S. Coast Guard vessel uh, trying to get them off. And there was a, a, a legal um, hearing from advocates who were notified um, and were already kind of in place to uh, file uh, paperwork on behalf of these uh, plaintiffs in the, court, in the federal court in, in Miami, um, arguing that these folks were on uh, dry land. These, dis these, these disputes were not around jurisdiction. No one denied that this was uh, U.S. territory, but this is a lighthouse that it was about 11 kilometers off the coast of the nearest Florida Key, and it was wet underneath the lighthouse at all times. At high tide, it was about 1.5 meters worth of, of water under the lighthouse. And eventually the judge said, you know what, this is not dry land, this doesn't count, um, and those who passed this credible fear determination were taken to Guantanamo and the rest were sent back directly to Cuba. There have been other, other similar cases that are in, in some ways quite absurd because they, they get into you know, just a few meters of what constitutes dry versus uh, wet territory. So there are a few limitations here on this kind of moat um, t uh, policy. Um, even in international waters, um, we do see some limited uh, self-restraint by the executive. Uh, we have seen a number of instances of civil society organizations, legal advocacy groups who have allies in Congress who have taken up this issue, such as the Black Congressional Caucus when it comes to uh, Haitian asylum seekers, 
who have around the margins been able to uh, shape uh, some of these, these policies. International law has not really played uh, an important role in restraining the executive, uh, but I think that these softer kinds of norms around humanitarianism uh, have been uh, somewhat, uh, some, somewhat effective. I wouldn't want to overstate it, but, but they're, they're relevant here. Okay, there's also a, an intensive effort to create a buffer between the U.S. and the rest of the world, primarily, though, with, with Central America. As I said, the idea of any kind of U.S. activity in Mexico um, is, is a sensitive one, um, but more Recently, even though these kinds of policies have been going on since the early 1980s, U.S. government officials have been a little bit more open about it. And a few years ago, in front of Congress, a high-ranking official of the Department of Homeland Security said something quite remarkable, which is that the Guatemalan border with Chiapas, Chiapas is the southernmost state of Mexico, is now our, as in the U.S., southern border. If you go to this border, it's uh, mostly a, a jungle area here. It's the same in, in Belize as well as in most of the Guatemalan border. And then there's a, a river here, the Suchiate River. And it looks open. It doesn't look like what you would think of as a typical um, buffer zone country. It does not look like the Berlin Wall. And in fact, you can openly see rafts carrying unauthorized migrants crossing right in front of the bridge where there's the formal crossing point. And there's no effort on the part of the Mexican authorities or the Guatemalan authorities to do anything about this. It happens in, in full view. Um, evidently, no one cares. What there is, though, in Mexico is something called uh, the, the vertical frontier, which is that this policy, which on the one hand allows petty commerce, family reunification, uh, day laborers coming across, temporary laborers coming across on the southern border, it allows all of that to happen, but it also makes it quite difficult to make it all the way from Central America up to the, the border with the U.S., so there's intensive controls on bus routes, train routes, air routes leading north, and then racial profiling to pull people off the bus who look like they're not uh, Mexican, uh, various tests applied, and then the, the treatment of them um, varies depending on their nationality. The main way that Mexico acts as a buffer uh, for the U.S. is through large-scale deportations at, at quite a large scale. We're talking about more than 3 million people since this became a, uh, a serious policy um, since around 1989, 1990. The U.S. has been financing the deportations of third country nationals at least since the, the mid-1990s. There is a, a whole range of buffering activities that's been happening since the early 80s and since 2007 under the Merida Initiative. It involves a lot of training of Mexican officials, provision of equipment, the, the development of um, databases that are, that are linked, many different kinds of capacity building that would be familiar to those of you who have examined the, the case of Australian uh, capacity building in places like Indonesia. Almost all of those people that I showed you in that previous uh, graph are of, of three different nationalities. Uh, within Central America, the so-called Northern Triangle nationalities from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. In, in this graph, you can see during the, the period of, of high enforcement, uh, kind of the differential weight of the U.S. versus uh, Mexico on those, on those nationalities. So in red, you're looking at deportations by the Mexican government and blue deportations by the U.S. government. For most of this period, the Mexican government has been doing the heavy lifting. The U.S. ramped up deportations in the last two years of uh, the George W. Bush administration, the first uh, more or less six years of Obama, 
um, still a pretty high level in his last two years. But I would draw your attention here to uh, 2015, after a so-called surge of unaccompanied minors from Central America started arriving in the U.S. and created uh, kind of a, a spectacle. The U.S. government very openly applied pressure on the Mexican government to shut down that flow, and you can see the, the deportations really spike from, uh, from Mexico during that period. Almost all of those three nationalities who are detained in Mexico are then deported. The government doesn't use ugly terms like deportation or detention center. They use euphemisms like many other countries, but this is definitely what's, what's going on. What's interesting, though, is that if you get away from those three nationalities and look at some other nationalities, you'll see some very different treatments. So going back to the Cubans, recall that wet foot, dry foot, and dry foot didn't just mean the beach. It meant U.S. dry land. Um, so it turns out that one possible way to get to U.S. dry land is not to travel across the Straits of Florida, but to travel a more or less equal distance across the, the Yucatan Channel and travel by land up to the U.S. border and present oneself and say, I am a Cuban national, I'm on dry land, I'm you know, stepping my toe onto U.S. soil, uh, please parole me. And in fact, that's what happens in almost all cases when Cubans do that. And so very quietly, but in pretty significant numbers, more than 30,000 in 2015, Cuban nationals have done that. This is not considered a political issue in the U.S. Very few people are even aware of this. It's not a secret, but no one cares. There's no big detention center. There's no warehouse full of screaming babies. You have just a trickle of people who are quickly processed. They're sent into the U.S. They go, they reunite with family members in South Florida. And I think it's important because it shows that the U.S. government has plenty of capacity to handle the arrival of tens of thousands of people. Um, so the question is, where is there a will and where is there not a will? But the capacity is, is there. The Mexican government does detain um, some uh, Cuban nationals, but in almost all cases, they're given an exit permit. They have 30 days to leave Mexico, which means they have 30 days to get on the bus and go up to the Texas border. Similarly, um, nationals from different Asian countries, even more dramatically, nationals from African countries are um, being detained when they arrive in Mexico. You can see the detentions have risen, and if you were to bring this out to the last several months, it would be uh, quite a bit higher. Also, there's a movement of Haitians that are coming via uh, Brazil right now. Very few are, are deported, and that's for a number of different reasons I can get into later. Here, what's interesting is that the United States government does not seem to be particularly concerned about the idea of a handful. We're talking about you know, 2,500, 5,000 uh, people showing up at the U.S. border and if they have passed a security screening. So the U.S. government is concerned about security. So there are U.S. agents quietly based in southern Mexico and at airports in Mexico, again, very, very quietly. This is very controversial and sensitive, who conduct a security screening. If the people pass the security screening, they're also given exit permits. They arrive at the U.S. border some days later. It's not considered, at least until now, uh, a, a serious political issue. So there are some limitations, though, on this kind of buffering. Uh, one of them is that U.S. Uh, buffering aid, capacity building, is conditioned on human rights uh, performance indicators. There are particular people within the U.S. Congress who have taken this on as an important issue to them. So there, there is some oversight. I wouldn't want to overstate that, but I think, it's, I think there would be more abuses were it not for this kind of conditionality. Um, maybe more importantly, there is 
the growth of a civil society presence concerned with these issues within Mexico. Historically, there's been very little on the ground. Um, so this is arising from a number of different reasons. Part of it is grassroots, but it's also being promoted very uh, systematically by a number of U.S.-based philanthropical organizations, such as the, the Ford Foundation. One of the other constraints here, which applies to the Mexican case in a way that doesn't really apply to the Indonesian-Australian case, is that Mexico is a country of very large migration to the U.S. Uh, when I say very large migration, there are more people of Mexican birth living in the U.S. than there are total immigrants in any other country in the world. There are more Mexicans in the U.S. than there are total immigrants in Russia or total immigrants in Germany or total immigrants in France, total immigrants in the U.K., etc. So the issue of transit through Mexico becomes subsumed in this much broader set of, of issues around uh, Mexican migration to the U.S. And to the extent that the U.S. government unilaterally takes harsh measures against Mexicans, then it makes it more difficult for the Mexican government to be seen as doing the bidding of the Americans when it comes to stopping uh, third country nationals from moving through Mexico. And finally, another set of techniques is around caging people either in their country of origin or within the region. And the U.S. began doing this um, actually in the 1980s, but it started doing it in a serious way with large numbers of people from Haiti and Cuba and then to a lesser extent some other nationalities in the, the 1990s. Uh, the U.S. Um, naval base in Guantanamo Bay is under a uh, a lease that goes back to 1903. I can tell you about the complicated politics of that. Um, the bottom line is that the, the courts have now ruled that this does not constitute U.S. territory for the sake of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which means that the rights of the people held there are sharply constrained. This is actually a new interpretation. Before the mid-1990s, the interpretation was that that was U.S. territory and uh, people had full constitutional rights there. In any event, the U.S. government has very few... Um, migrants detained there now, um, we're talking about maybe 30 or 40, but it has plans in place to put many, many tens of thousands there in case there's another mass movement out of the Caribbean and actively works with the governments in the region to plan for such a contingency. There's some limitations to this caging, and one, when, when people have been caged up in uh, Cuba and Haiti, there's a certain political price because on the one hand, U.S. government policy has often been to try to overthrow those regimes or change the nature of those regimes. So to the extent that there's this open coordination with them to try to keep their nationals from leaving, that looks bad. It looks bad domestically and also looks bad internationally. In, in the case particularly of Cuban movement to uh, the U.S., uh, the, the the government of Castro when he was in power, of Fidel Castro when he was in power, was especially adept at using um, the ability to open and close the, the borders of Cuba to outflows as a technique of gaining leverage in the broader, uh, very hostile bilateral relationship. And then there is a need to create at least some kind of uh, minimal alternatives of, of legal paths because the argument is made, well, people are... are jumping the line, uh, what we call here, you know, they're, they're jumping the queue. Um, so there is the need to create at least the pretense of a queue. In most cases, this is a very, very small token. So you can think of, for example, the U.S. program in Haiti, where very few people were, were given uh, a legal path into the U.S., and they also had to line up outside 
the U.S. Embassy in full view of the security services, um, which were the exact same individuals who were persecuting them. So it's, it's, it's limited. But to finish off here, there, there is now, of course, a linkage um, between the kind of caging activities that go on um, in the U.S. And, and what's gone on in, uh, in Australia. My first point is that until Trump was elected, this was an unknown issue in the U.S., not because it was a secret, but simply because it didn't have any political saliency. The, the, the numbers of people involved were a drop in the bucket. Um, the, and you, you could round up 1,000 people on the street, and you'd be lucky to find one who even knew that there was any kind of discussion going on. So it never has had the political saliency that it's had here. In the first version of this agreement, the so-called Atlantic Solution, there was going to be a reciprocal exchange between uh, asylum seekers on, uh, and, on Nauru and on and Guantanamo, who had then passed the refugee status determination process, been found to be refugees, and then would be exchanged. Well, that never happened because uh, Prime Minister Rudd ended the Pacific Solution. The people that were going to originally go to the U.S. instead came to Australia. And the second version... Um, which the Australian government has suggested is, is not a swap, but it looks very much like a swap to the outside observer. Uh, first, the Australian government announced that it would resettle some unidentified number of people and conditions that were quite fuzzy, ill-defined, that remains the case, um, who are in Costa Rica. Let me say just a word about this population because it's quite different from the, the second part of the non-swap swap, which is uh, people who have been detained on... Um, on Manus and, and Nauru. So the, these Central Americans are, are from the three Northern Triangle nationalities. They have never been to the U.S. They have never been interdicted by the U.S. This was a kind of public relations campaign to say, well, we're going to make a small uh, program so that people who have legitimate concerns for humanitarian protection can have a, a way to get to safety. So they pass an initial screening by the U.S. in-country um, and then if they pass that, they're taken to Costa Rica, where there's a more complete refugee status determination process conducted by the UNHCR and financed by the U.S. government. So it's not really an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, but nevertheless, that is the, 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 those are the parameters around this, um, this deal. And then famously, um, and this did become known in the U.S., um, mostly because of Saturday Night Live, which brought this into the attention of those who don't you know, sit around reading the, uh, the Economist and the New York Times all day long. Um, there was this notorious phone call where, and, and then Trump tweeted after, afterwards that Obama had made what he called a dumb deal to bring uh, thousands of what he called illegal immigrants uh, from Australia to the U.S. So we also know that um, the Department of Homeland Security is, um, is actively screening people um, on, on, in, in the two offshore processing centers, but legal developments in the U.S. have put all of this in, in doubt. Um, so just to remind you of some of the legal challenges and how they relate specifically, specifically to this, in the second uh, Trump executive order that um, banned the admission of six nationalities for 90 days, it also suspended the entire U.S. refugee resettlement program for 120 days, that, that's important because it also reduced the, the annual cap that the U.S. had to, uh, to 50,000 people. So one of the questions is, even if this deal were to, to go through, uh, perhaps the U.S. would meet its cap uh, before there would be a chance to resettle people from the Australian uh, centers. 
a more fundamental issue because the U.S. government has actually, in, in that order, been given the authority between the Secretary of um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security as well as the Secretary of State to admit individuals uh, at their discretion. What, what, what's, what's more difficult is that many of the nationalities that are in the proce processing centers are, are the same uh, nationalities that are, uh, that, that are banned altogether. There have been a number of lawsuits around this. There is one lawsuit uh, by a federal judge, or that was ruled on by a federal judge in Hawaii, that blocked a refugee provision. And that is, uh, is going forward in uh, an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. That case will be heard on May 15th. And, and then we may have a little more clarity about uh, whether or not this, this deal will be consecrated. In the end, uh, stay tuned, and I will turn the program back over to my colleagues who will elucidate the, uh, the Australian case. Thanks very much. Okay, so 10 minutes uh, to talk about Australia and offshore processing and externalisation. Um, where to start, really? And uh, I think uh, I'm also in a situation where I'm probably talking to a number of people who, who live and breathe this uh, issue daily as well, so uh, there's probably not a lot new I can tell most of you, but... Um, I think it is important to look, following on from what David has said, around where does Australia go from here or how did we get to this point and, uh, and what are some of the drivers, I guess, around hopefully changing uh, the situation in Australia and, uh, and what can we do about it. Uh, in terms of history, uh, I think it is worth um, just touching on a little bit around externalisation, uh, as, as David has mentioned. This is something that, uh, as we've heard, the US has been doing for quite some time. Uh, Australia has been very good at copying, adapting, modifying, uh, I'm sure they would say improving uh, some of the US policies, but we're also now increasingly seeing these policies adopted around the world and the EU is seriously looking at what Australia and the US has been doing and looking at uh, how they can potentially engage in a number of these externalisation uh, policies. And, and for us, I guess, the really obvious ones are offshore processing, Manus Island and Nauru. However, as we know, there are a number of ways that governments actually use externalisation. It's all about how do we stop people who would otherwise have some sort of rights once they got here, asylum seekers, refugees, from actually getting here. Because governments know once they arrive, there are whole hosts of legal processes that would normally apply to them. And Australia has been very good at, at shifting that in, in many respects. Uh, 
But the whole comprehensive plan of action, when we're talking about Vietnamese boat arrivals in the late 70s, early 80s, we now sort of look back at that as some sort of golden era because of the way Australia stepped up and resettled tens of thousands of Vietnamese. But we need to remember that this policy was set up to stop boats arriving. What we're talking about from an Australian perspective is a paranoia around boats. And this goes right back to the formation of the Refugee Convention. Again, when we talk about what a great history Australia has in terms of refugee protection and everyone says, come on, we were one of the first to sign the Convention. We helped write the Convention. But even back when the Convention was being formulated, it was the Australian officials who were saying, hang on a minute, are you actually saying this means when somebody comes to our territory, we have to protect them? You know, we can't make a selection. And the Europeans said, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's what this convention is supposed to do. So right the way back, you know, in 1951, Australia really didn't get what asylum and seeking asylum <laughs> was all about. You know, it was all a bit of a shock. Quite happy, again, to take tens of thousands of vulnerable refugees out of Europe. As long as we can select them, what great global citizens we are. But people arriving spontaneously, this is an issue and it's always been an issue for Australia and how we've tried to deal with that issue has been a really slippery slope for this country. So the Comprehensive Plan of Action was really about, as we've heard, working with your neighbours, getting them to do your dirty work, stopping people there on the basis that we will then select people and, and take them uh, out of your hands. That's left a really dangerous legacy, I think, in this region, uh, where this region now thinks they don't have to deal with refugees. They can stop them because other governments are going to take them out of our hands. And even most recently, one of the sort of, again, the good news, we're clutching for good news, um, is in Indonesia at the end of last year, there was a presidential decree for the first time really recognising refugees in Indonesia and giving some sort of legal status. But underpinning that presidential decree, which, you know, including me, as Amnesty and others, have jumped up and down and said, hooray, underpinning it is this notion that we will recognise these refugees, but somebody else is going to come and take them from us. You know, we're not going to be left with these people. Um, mandatory detention, I think, is an interesting uh, Australian contribution to how we treat people who arrive spontaneously. The problem is it wasn't external. The people ended up being stuck in detention centres here. Very expensive, very embarrassing. And the reality is, while we've kept that on the uh, legislative books, it's the exception rather than the rule these days. Most of the people who arrived sort of prior to July 2013 are living in the community you know, 25,000 to 30,000 people, in theory, should all be mandatorily detained. But, we, you know, politically that would just be ridiculous. You know, it would cost a fortune. It, it just couldn't be done. So, you know, that didn't really work. So we then know, you know, in the late 90s, boats arriving again. We try the temporary protection visas. That doesn't really work, although... The coalition is still wedded to that as part of its pyramid, its three key policies to stop people coming by boats. You've got to have temporary protection visas. 
but it failed, which was why we started our the first Pacific solution. Very interestingly, with the first Pacific solution, uh, about 1,600 people ended up on Manus Island and Nauru, 400 of whom volunteered to go back, uh, and yet uh, of those who were recognised as refugees, 700 came to Australia, 400 went to New Zealand. This apparently is now impossible. If this happened now, the boats would start again. That, you know, um, and yet this was done in a couple of years under Howard and no fuss, no bother, those people, temporary protection visas, subsequently permanent protection, most of them are citizens. So we then end up with boats coming again and the mess that we've seen over the last uh, three, four, five years around first Julia Gillard, no advantage, people taken to Nauru and Manus, uh, then Rudd comes in, um, those people who are told you're never coming to Australia are brought back to Australia, a whole new group are taken to Nauru and Manus and they're told they're never coming to Australia. We have excision, uh, so we take the whole of Australia outside of our migration zone, um, you know, something that I don't think the US has come up with um, but I'm sure they're looking at. Um, we then have also, when the coalition were elected in 2013, a very explicit regional deterrence policy. Regional you know, deterrence was going to be pushed into the region. We were going to give patrol boats. We did give patrol boats to Sri Lanka. We gave patrol boats to Malaysia. We've got IOM doing our dirty work in Indonesia, um, tens of, of millions of dollars to improve detention centres. So there's whole different ways that we've externalised our uh, migration policy and our issues to do with refugees. Um, so where are we now in the last minute I've got? Uh, the US deal. I mean, we've heard about this US deal. I think part of that is a recognition after the scandals we've seen, the Nauru files, the Moss inquiry, you know, um, the sexual abuse of children people setting themselves on fire, a recognition by the Australian government that offshore processing has come to an end, that half a million uh, dollars uh, per person per year uh, is a ridiculous amount of money to keep 2,000 people hostage uh, in extraordinary damaging conditions. So what do we get with this US deal? Um, we know that of the 2,000 odd people, about 1,500 have so far volunteered to go. Uh, of that, you know, 1,600 people have actually been recognised as refugees. So at the moment we're told they're the ones that are eligible. But of course we had a US official uh, stand up and say, well, 1,250. Um, the Australian government is now saying, well, that was just a guideline. They don't really mean that. It's actually going to be more than that, we think. Um, and, you know... At the moment there's 1,600. So far the US have um, taken 900 cases to look at. Uh, 600 from Nauru, 300 from Manus. This is in their sort of first wave of uh, processing. We've been told once that's done they will then come back and look at the rest. But we still have you know, 370 people here in Australia who don't want to go back to Nauru or Manus. Um, not surprisingly, 
many of whom have medical conditions which would make it impossible for them to go back to Nauru or Manus. They simply couldn't be treated. Others are survivors of, of rape and really don't want to go back to the island where their rapist still lives. Not a single conviction of uh, a Nauruan citizen um, for any of the assaults that have been occurring uh, on that, in that country. So why would you want to go back? Um, and many of these people are from families who uh, the husband or the wife is already in this country, has some sort of residency, may be a citizen. But we also know that some of the men on Manus uh, have wives and children uh, in other parts of the world, still in Pakistan or Malaysia or Indonesia. If they volunteer to go to the US, will they ever be able to see their family again if their family's Iranian? Um, you know, what happens if you're a husband on, on Manus and your wife and kids are here uh, in Australia and your processing has been um, uh, put on hold uh, while part of your family's here in Australia? So you haven't been recognised as a refugee. Are you still eligible for this US deal? Uh, we've been told that uh, Manus Island is going to close at the end of the year. What happens to those people who aren't accepted by the US? Will they ever be able to see their family again? So there are still a lot of questions out there around the future of these people uh, and the future of this policy, I think. And this is where I think, or I hope, uh, the people who've come along on a somewhat damp uh, Wednesday evening are the kind of people who are keen to take action. And I know there are a number of organisations, Amnesty International is one, but there are a number of organisations that are still trying to lobby hard to get this policy changed and I would recommend that you continue to take action on this because there's still a hell of a lot of work to do. Thank you very much. Uh, hello. Um, thank you, David and Graham, for those really illuminating talks. This evening I'm going to speak about Australia's onshore detention network. Our onshore system employs what we might call um, a soft violence. That is, it uses techniques that function to break people while maintaining an outward appearance of civility and respect for the law. It's these techniques and the way that they affect both asylum seekers and those who support them that I'm going to focus on tonight. Let me begin with some anecdotes. A volunteer visits a detention centre each week she takes a soccer ball and kicks it around outside with the asylum seeker children. Depending on who is on guard, this activity may or may not be permitted. She arrives one day to find that a no soccer sign has been erected. A volunteer visits a detention centre each week to play pool with the teenage boys. One day she arrives and finds that the pool balls have been confiscated. The pool table and cues remain and become to these young asylum seeker men a constant reminder of their powerlessness and frustration. An asylum seeker who uses a wheelchair is not allowed help manoeuvring himself around a detention facility. He has no gloves and develops blisters on his hands. He stops attending meals because moving the chair is becoming too painful. A blanket rule prevents other asylum seekers from taking him food in his room. Adult Muslim asylum seekers are encouraged to colour in pictures of preschool-level Easter bunnies, 
and are rewarded with points to spend at the detention centre shop if they do so. One day with no notice or explanation, all colouring in is banned. These stories come from interviews that I conducted in 2015 and 2016 with members of the community who uh, visit and support asylum seekers in Australia's onshore detention facilities. A prominent theme in these testimonies concerns the arbitrary exercise of power within the network. Interviewees painted a picture of a, a Kafkaesque scheme of constantly shifting permissions and prohibitions, a world in which unpredictable rules dictated the minute details of asylum seekers' lives. Within immigration detention, visitors encountered seemingly arbitrary requirements and practices on a regular basis. Rules were introduced and changed with little, if any, explanation. And while these rule changes often function to make life more difficult or at a minimum less stable for the asylum seekers and their supporters, the opaque and capricious way in which power was exercised meant that there was very little recourse for those affected. It was usually unclear where permissions and prohibitions were coming from, and the rules were applied in different ways depending on which guard was on duty. Now, individually, these events could easily be dismissed as bureaucratic rules or oversights. They don't necessarily seem sinister. But what my interviewees emphasised was that these micro-level controls served as a constant reminder of who was in control. They underlined the fact that the asylum seekers and indeed the volunteers who supported them were subject to a, a greater authority, an authority significantly that owed them no explanations and seemed entirely indifferent to the human costs of its decisions. Within the onshore network, this same sense of, of powerlessness was communicated through larger disruptions also. So in addition to describing these micro-level controls, almost all participants in my study also recalled at least one event that might be described as a momentous disruption. That is a single occurrence that shook them and altered their perceptions of the world. While there were many stories of self-harm and even some stories of asylum seeker death, a lot of the interviewees identified the forced relocation of someone that they were supporting as the most, um, I guess, distressing thing that they had encountered during their volunteering. Visitors told stories recounted to them by other asylum seekers at the centres of guards waking their friends in the middle of the night and dragging them away for relocation. They also described their own experiences of arriving at these centres to find that their friends were no longer there. In almost all, in almost all instances, the interviewees emphasised the secrecy and inexplicability of these removals. Asylum seekers were moved without warning or explanation and the volunteers were rarely advised of where their friends had been moved to. So just as a visitor might arrive at a detention facility to find that the pool balls had removed, been removed or um, their soccer games cancelled, so too might they arrive to find that their friends were no longer there. As one volunteer put it, what is horrible about detention is the sheer random cruelty of it. Uh, and I think that this next quote is worth reading in its entirety. They get abducted pretty much. Nobody knows and there's constantly distressing scenes as one family or another is being dragged away to be put on a plane with very little notice. 
and it's so upsetting for all the other refugees that they're seeing and it's so bad for the kids that they're seeing people get hauled off and people are crying and begging and it's all enacted in the middle of the centre in front of everyone else. And this happened day after day. And that was the thing that I learnt that I didn't know about, how dreadfully stressful it is for everybody there when other people are suddenly dragged away because they've gotten to know people and especially the kids, just wham, they're gone. And you never know if it's going to be you tomorrow morning. This is a world in which every asylum seeker understands that they could be next and no volunteer can be sure that this visit won't be their last. And while on the surface many of these relocations appear unremarkable, the asylum seekers are often just moved within the onshore detention network. They produce intense anxiety and fear. They prevent the asylum seekers and visitors from achieving a sense of stability and they happen often particularly my interviewee suggested when an asylum seeker is being encouraged to return home voluntarily. If we compare the sorts of stories that I've shared uh, tonight with those coming out of places like Manus Island and Nauru, it's easy to see how the onshore system could be seen as benign, even civilised. Nonetheless, what we're talking about here is a system that breaks people, and indeed a system that has been repeatedly shown to break people even as it pays lip service to human rights. Being detained within Australia's onshore detention network has been shown to be a reliable predictor, an independent predictor of post-traumatic stress disorder, irrespective of any history of pre-migration trauma. Detained asylum seekers also experience high levels of anxiety and depression with self-harm and suicidal tendencies widely reported. Longer periods of detention have been associated with worse outcomes and there's some evidence that asylum seekers who were detained for long periods of time never fully recover even after they're released. Research also suggests that visitors to and employees of these detention facilities experience, I guess, comparable negative impacts and, and certainly my own research supports that proposition. Participants in my study, so people who visited immigration detention facilities on a voluntary basis, overwhelmingly described their experiences in, in terms that were consistent with psychological definitions of what constitutes a traumatic experience. This wasn't true of volunteers who supported asylum seekers within the community. The experiences of community-based volunteers actually resonated with the literature regarding the benefits of volunteer work. So these interviewees emphasised their sense of purpose and satisfaction, their ability to make a difference in the lives of the people that they were supporting. In contrast, people who visited detention facilities often described a, a crippling sense of powerlessness, an inability at times to even offer hope. These volunteers were witnesses to extreme suffering um, but they felt unable to give substantive meaning to their preferred moral identities um, by offering meaningful help. And as ideals like justice and fairness broke down before them, these visitors were forced to confront both the precariousness of their own good fortune um, and also their, their sense of guilt and shame as privileged Australians. Um, as Snyder writes in his sociological study of trauma, the participants in my study began to notice 
the cracks in the world through which violence can come rushing at you. So Australia's onshore detention network is producing anguish and trauma in detained asylum seekers, as well as in the people who support them. And if we think about these outcomes in the context of Australia's quite overt deterrence policy, it's possible to see why these sorts of practices might be employed. Australia's offshore detention, I beg your pardon, onshore detention facilities are producing asylum seekers who might consider returning home voluntarily and whose brokenness could conceivably be deterring others from following in their path. They're producing asylum seekers whose occasional demonstrations of distress and resistance can be held up to the public as evidence of bad character. And they're producing distressed and despairing volunteers who are often unable to sustain their volunteering over long periods of time and whose attrition weakens valuable networks of resistance and support. To sum up, trauma and anguish are institutionalised features of Australia's onshore immigration detention network. The asylum seekers within these facilities, and indeed those who support them, are subject to an excess of bureaucratic rules and manoeuvres. And these elaborate and capricious systems of permissions and prohibitions might appear unproblematic to the casual observer, but they ultimately function to break asylum seekers and those who endeavour to support them. Thanks very much. Behruz Bouchani, Iranian-Kurdish journalist, scholar, cultural advocate, political prisoner held in Manus prison. I'll start with a speech by Behruz and then recite three passages from his memoir, a memoir being published by Picador. <coughs> from the first day here in Manus prison, I wanted people to know about this place. From the first moment, I knew it was an oppressive system dictator-like, an oppressive system against refugees and asylum seekers. I was writing here as a journalist for two years, especially with The Guardian, and I made some short documentaries. I expected journalism work, in collaboration with the media and on my own, to make some change and bust open the system. The government propaganda which was much stronger than me, and my voice was lost. Now, after three years, I realise that the Australian people still don't really know what's going on here. It seems no one recognises this as systematic torture. They don't see the reality. Journalism is a very weak and superficial form of communication. It's an ineffective language. So I turned to creative expression. I started collaborating with artists. One example is a theatre troupe from Iran whose play is currently on stage. It's called Manus. And I have a book project called Manus Prison or The Prison on Manus, which I'm working on with Omid. It's really different to journalism or academic writing. It uses literary language. But the most important work I created so far is the film Choker, Please Tell Us the Time, which I made with Arash Kamari Sarvastani. It was made under extremely difficult circumstances. Even now, I've had to travel by bus for 40 minutes to send my voice recording to Omid and speak to you. When we were making the film, the doors were closed and it was really hard sending the footage out. I didn't even have a camera. 
The people who speak in the film are people who have suffered psychologically and physically. It was really hard bringing them in front of the camera to talk about it. A number of them quit in the middle of the project. The film discusses colonialism because this system is rooted in a colonial ideology. They're using the Manusians, the locals, against the asylum seekers. They are being sacrificed as well. We use Choka as a concept since it's really important to the Manusians. The solitary confinement in Manus is also called Choka. A horrific concept for asylum seekers. A beautiful and symbolic concept for Manusians. The Australian government put the name on the solitary uh, prison and tortured under this name. There are two narratives running parallel in the film. One is an ugly choker, which exists in the minds of the asylum seekers. The other is a beautiful choker, present for the Manusians. The film ends when they come together and it turns out the Australian government has been behind all of this. I made this film after three years when I realised I can't change anything, can't change the political system through journalism. I started foundational work, working for, systematic, for systemic change that will last the test of time. I wanted to make sure the crimes of the Australian government were recorded in history. This could only be done using the language of art and I'm pleased with the results. So, so there's a play, film and a literary work. Many things have been written before by asylum seekers and detainees, but my three projects together will, will secure a place in history. They document the torture in the camps. They don't let anyone forget the propaganda and the system created by the government. Journalism is not very powerful. It's just a form of daily report. The lifespan is only one to two years and then it's forgotten. But film, theatre and literature become established in history. The government can't torture people in this system and project its propaganda and then after four years say it's all over now. Wash its hands of it. No. The history of Manus has been documented in Australian history and the history of migration to Australia. The play Manus is showing in Iran now. I'm a prisoner and I don't have, <clears throat> and I don't have the power or opportunities to bring them to Australia. This group really wants to come to Australia and wants to perform this amazing and high-quality show for people to realise what's going on. It's a documentary-style play. I need help. I need support to arrange for them to come to Australia and perform. This is important to me. And the film is also very important. There's no big company or some organisation backing it. It's just the work of a few creatives. They felt a sense of duty and created it. These two works need to be seen. Australians need to see them. Sometimes I want to post on Facebook that I need help and have tried a few times to get support, but I've been unsuccessful. The critics that have um, seen these works acknowledge the first-class quality, both the film and the play. The book isn't out yet, so we'll just have to wait. These are foundational works addressing systemic um, issues that contribute to the history of Australia. We need support to ensure that people experience them. I'll read now from chapter one. This is a chapter that is about the truck journey from the accommodation in Indonesia to the shore where the boat is waiting for them.
The trucks continued en route through the dense forest and disrupted the silence, the silence of the night. After being restricted to sitting on the wooden floor of the truck for hours, the weariness on each and everyone's face and body was obvious. One or two people had vo even vomited. They threw up everything they had eaten into plastic containers. In the corner of the vehicle sat a Sri Lankan couple with a month-old child. The passengers were Iranian, Kurdish and Iraqi, and the presence of a Sri Lankan family among them enticed fascination. The woman was extraordinarily beautiful with dark eyes. Still during her breastfeeding period, she sat with her baby in her arms. Her partner tried to comfort them. He cared for them the best he could and caressed the woman's shoulders. He wanted her to know that he was there to support her. During the whole trip, the man tried to reassure her either by massaging her shoulders or holding her tight as the truck jolted violently over the bumpy road. The woman's only concern was her small child. The scene in that corner was an instance of love in all its glory and purity. The second passage is from the second chapter. As their boat is starting to sink and they're swapping places to try to empty the water out of the boat and save their lives, Behrus takes a break, falls into sleep and has a dream. Again, the vision of the mountains upon mountains. There were so many mountains, a series of mountains together, mountains within mountains, mountains that carried on and on, mountains that were hiding chestnut trees. The mountains were barren. There was not even a tree in sight. The mountains transformed into waves, transformed into aggressive waves. No, this place wasn't Kurdistan. So why was my mother there? Why was a war going on in that place? Tanks, rows of tanks and helicopters, blades of battle and dead bodies, piles of the dead and cries of mourning from women, a children's place wing hanging from the branch of the chestnut tree, girls wearing flower pattern dresses and equipped with musical instruments, a war was taking place, shedding of blood and playing of music, mountains and waves, waves and mountains. Where was this place? Why was my mother dancing? This last passage is a short passage and I think the power is in its, um, in its uh, succinctness. It's from the, the chapter that describes the first month on Manus Island, in, in Manus Prison. We were 400 people, 400 lost souls in a tightly confined space, 400 prisoners, all anticipating the nights so we could leave and enter our nightmares. Thank you.
If you don't mind, I'm going to send around um, a sign-up sheet. If you'd like to put your email down, if you'd like to be updated about all the different artistic, literary activities that are being uh, conducted at the moment and uh, advancing at the moment on issues around displacement and exile, we'd really love to be in conversation with you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.